Alright, welcome back. New edition of the Wide Right Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, your Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. We're recording this right around 1.45 p.m. on Wednesday, December 30. So this will be the final episode of the 2020 year for us here at Wide Right. Uh, I've got uh, my producer, Mike Zimmerman, on the line with me, as well as uh, Walter Villa, the host of Front Page 305 Podcast on Sirius XM Radio and a uh, Local beat writer here in Miami for many, many years. He and I go way back uh, to the Miami Herald and working together there. Walter was my mentor, helped me uh, come along as a writer. So he is a huge Canes fan, knows all the Canes history. So we brought him on to talk with uh, with Mike and myself today following this bowl loss, uh, the Cheez-It Bowl loss by the Hurricanes, uh, 37-34 in Orlando, falling to Oklahoma State. And Miami fans right now, I think, are sort of in um, that frenzied mode. Walter, where, you know, when you end a season with a bowl loss and then, you know, a regular season loss the way they did to North Carolina, it's fire everybody mode, right? We got to get rid of the coaches. We got to get rid of Blake Baker, the defensive coordinator. We got to make big drastic changes because this team is nowhere close enough to winning a championship, let alone competing in the ACC. And so everybody wants to make drastic changes. As somebody who's seen this program progress over the years, I'm wondering where your mindset is knowing the history of what it takes to build a winner and how long it takes, um, knowing what Howard Schnellenberger did, the amount of time he put in, all that kind of stuff. Where Where is your mind at after what you saw last night? Well, thanks, uh, Manny, for having me on. Thanks, Mike. I mean, I'm not at all one of those uh, knee-jerk fans and and say fire. That, that never entered my mind, fire everybody. I would say that if there is some – I mean, Manny Diaz made some great adjustments last year. Uh, to bring in a new offensive coordinator, got the kicker, helped the offensive line with Jared Williams on, at right tackle, got the quarterback. He made some really astute decisions last year in bringing people in to fix uh, what needed to be fixed. And I think it's more of a case of adjustments. It's interesting, uh, Manny, you would know more. I mean, his relationship with Blake Baker seems to go back. I wonder if uh, if if he can't make a move because of that friendship. But if there's an established defense, defensive coordinator out there um, – you know, that would seem to be something that he would need to pursue and maybe reassign Blake Baker within the organization and a position coach or something if his ego would allow. He also has, I think we talked, Manny, last podcast, three scholarships. Seem like those going to be grad transfers. And there seems to be quite a few places where you can apply those scholarships to, to, to fix some holes. So, no, I, I don't think at all it's about fire everybody. It's about making some more astute decisions, some some adjustments. But Manny and, and Mike, I want to get your, your take as well as a big Canes fan. I mean, to me, I had two major questions. Manny, should I ask one at a time or uh, or both? Well, I think we can do it one at a time, and that way we can right. tackle each of them head on. But go ahead. All right. So, so the first one is wide receiver. That, that was obvious. Those guys were bad. Pope was bad. Wiggins was bad. I mean, Harley I have no problem with. Um, his body of work this year, but, but – it's not just this game. It was all season long, the drops, the lack of production. Wiggins, uh, Wiggins, well, no, Pope came in here as a five-star, has never lived up to that billing. And so my question for you guys and the coaches is, why didn't they play freshmen 
early on in the season, give them more and more responsibility. Um, you know, he's not averse to playing freshmen. He played Cheney and he played the Rooster, and those guys were terrific. Obviously, the Rooster got hurt, but Cheney last night, and he's continued to look better and better. Um, Keyshawn Smith, Manny, do I have that kid's name right? Yep. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the name murderer, but Keyshawn Smith, I, I've been impressed with him every time he's been on the field this year, getting his deep speed, get out of San Diego, getting behind um, defenders. Last night, he made a great, almost a diving attempt in the end zone on the sideline. The pass was a little bit errant by Nikosi, couldn't quite get it, but man, great effort. You know, um, I think Restrepo from his body of work in high school, uh, you know, I like my dad's Worsham, the other kid. I mean, they, they've got about four, uh, three, three or four freshmen and a redshirt freshman. That Why haven't those guys given, been given more responsibility? And maybe at this point of the year, they wouldn't have to be turning to Wiggins and Pope again and again and have them fail. Well, we, we can start with wide receiver. And, and Mike, I'm going to kick it to you next. But um, I, I think, look, Walter, I, I've been around football enough and, and around enough teams, and you have as well, that when guys don't play, it's because the coaches really believe they're not ready. It's not because I think, you know, they, they have some sort of loyalty to Mark Pope and D. Wiggins where it's like, okay, we, we still have to throw these guys the ball and give them a chance. I, I don't think so at all. I, I just think it's more of a situation where these freshmen maybe don't know enough of the offense and don't run the routes well enough or don't block well enough. Um Here's a couple interesting notes, and, and this is oh, – Oh, wait, Manny, wait. Yes, that's why – I don't think it was loyalty. That's what they think, but isn't it also true that they could be wrong? Because when we've seen mm -hmm. Keyshawn out there, he's done well. Maybe they're just wrong. Not but, only that, though, but you have Wiggins and Pope who aren't even doing the number one job of, of a receiver, which is to catch the ball. So if you're saying the young guys say like Keyshawn Smith and Redding and all these young guys who aren't getting on the field because the coaches don't believe they're ready, well – Pope and Wiggins aren't really doing much to stay on the field either. Right. Agreed. No, I, I understand. And and I think I think more than anything, they're in there for their blocking. And I know that sounds oh. hysterical. Yeah. But I, and, I, and Wiggins did have a Wiggins would have stayed on his block in the end zone. He did do a good job of that, I agree. But to to not give these freshmen, I agree with Zim, not give them any run during the year, hardly at all. I I, I just don't agree with that. Right. Um I, I think Here's And I'll give you some numbers because I'm a numbers guy and I want the facts out there, right? You, people always ask, well, how much did they play? Well, last night they went to Keyshawn Smith for 15 snaps. He was in there for 15 snaps. Michael Redding, who caught the last pass, that wide receiver screen on fourth and eight or whatever it was that he got five yards, uh, he was in for eight snaps. That was it. That was it for the freshman. Jeremiah Payton didn't play. Xavier Restrepo didn't play. Dazzlin Warsham didn't play all season. Dazzlin Warsham played one snap the entire year. Um, Can't forget about Marshall Few, though. Marshall Few came in on the two-point conversion. That was his one snap, and he scored on the trick play. So um, that's what you—that's what you had at wide receiver. And and for the season, by the way, for for long-term view for what they did in eleven games, Peyton was in on one hundred and forty-three snaps. So what is that? You do the average. That's about 10, set, 10, 11 snaps a game. 10, 11 snaps a game, right? Keyshawn Smith in for a total of one hundred and seven, and then Michael Redding sixty-seven. Restrepo 29, and and like I said earlier, Worsham won. Those were your freshmen, um, redshirt freshmen, you know, your young guys, how much work they actually got. So I think part of it, another aspect to all this too, you know, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic hit and, and there were several guys in the receiver core 
that ended up missing games and time because of that. I don't know how much practice time that included, but certainly I think that affected things. The fact that they only had four spring practices. Look, I'm not trying to make excuses. I was going to say, because every program in the country has dealt with this too. You right, know? right. I, I, it, and, also, and also, Manny, how, how many times have we seen, we say, oh, they're not ready because they're not showing in practice, which that may be true, but it's something I can't argue with because I'm not there at practice to see if they are ready or not. All I can see is the games. And as Mike points out, all I can see is the lack of production from Wiggins and Pope. And yes, Wiggins, uh, you know, I saw him in particularly that play in the end zone doing a great job blocking. That's fine. But it is demoralizing when you drop those passes. I mean, Nikosi actually did a good job. Not His body language wasn't bad. Those drops would be demoralizing. If, if any of the three of us were the quarterback, we'd be like, come on. Especially the, the little quick screen. Manny, that was the Pope, I think you told me. Yep. Uh, that that was a touchdown, and they ended up settling for a field goal. So that's four points that we gave up right there, and that couldn't have been any easier. I mean, it's just demoralizing. And so the point is, how many times have we seen guys that, that the veteran starter not doing well, and they get injured, and they're forced to go to the backup, and then all of a sudden the backup plays really well, you know, I don't know, Jeremy Lin, New York Knicks, uh, right. uh, Lin Sanity, or any other case that you come up with. And then, like, well, why weren't we playing this dude before? Right. Well, and- here's here's an example for your argument, Walter. Um, the the kid who lit up Miami yesterday, Brennan Presley, who had six, <laughs> seven, or was it six catches for 118 yards and three scores? One catch, seven yards. The entire season, right? Five yes. eight, 165 pound former three star recruit. So, thank you, thank you. I, so, look, I, it's not that I wanted to argue it one way or the other. I was just explaining what their thinking is versus what happened and. To me, I look at it as this. Um, at some point, Rob Likens and um, Coach Lashley, Rhett Lashley, they all had a com- – they had to have had a conversation over this. Had they not? I mean, there, yeah. there had to have been yeah. some sort of, hey, we need to get the freshmen in more. We need to, to involve them. But they didn't. And I don't know who that ultimately falls on. I don't know if that's Rob Likens' call. I don't know if that's Rhett Lashley's call. Either way, the job wasn't done. And I think, you know, we're going to sit here and debate – you know, Blake Baker more. We're going to debate a, a bunch of different topics because I know you have another question you want to get to, Walter. But I, I think as as fans and as listeners of this podcast, you need to understand that every decision that's that's ultimately made, I don't think falls on one person. It, it, Miami's group as a whole, collectively, uh, they, they all these decisions are made together. Manny Diaz doesn't make you know independent decisions by himself, even though he's the head coach. Um, right. he, so he then relies there's, there's got to be accountability then like you, right. you can't you can't just say as a collective unit we've failed sure that's that that may be true and, and all all those things that you're saying may be true but if there aren't changes that are made you're going to get the same results and and that's why and then ultimately it is Manny Diaz he is the head coach right and, and, and that's one thing we can say because I do defend I, I'm bringing up two questions I have for the coaching staff today but I do defend Manny Diaz as you know Manny uh, your namesake there I, I I defend Diaz a lot and he is he is accountable because he showed that last year how many coaches including going back to Al Golden that they, there was a criticism and it seemed like it was just made him more and more stubborn and didn't listen to what was obvious that the fixes that need to be made so I think I think he is responsive to to what's obvious and I think the wide receiver it was glaring last night but it, it let's not it's, that's not knee jerk Mike wasn't that the whole season almost almost every week there was one game where it was really bad I think it was Clemson and then he they opened up the job for everybody and then Harley was the one guy that really responded 
So I, I leave Harley out of it. I thought he had a nice year. But Wiggins and Pope, they got way, way, way too much playing time. So he, I, I've got, I guess I got two things without, without getting all over the place because we have, we have a lot to cover. But for, for uh, in terms of the wide receiver position, it it almost seems like because there was a feeling that the young freshmen and the younger players weren't going to get on the field, it was like Pope and Wiggins became complacent. They knew no. they weren't going to lose their jobs, and, and no. it looked like they they weren't, I guess, willing to to get better or even work on, you know pass catching after practice, you know, whatever. It seemed like they weren't worried about losing their jobs, which also then brings me to the second question, which I'd love to get your opinions, guys, because I'm not sure, and maybe I'm thinking too much into this, but does this ultimately feel like that this was a big year where Manny Diaz needed to win at all costs, so he figured these older guys give them the best chance to win? Because is he trying? Was he just trying to save his job this year after going six and seven last year, and said, "I don't have time to develop these guys for the future. I may not have a job after this season." It's a good question, uh, Mike. I, I haven't really ever thought of it that way. Um, I think the most practical sense, the the one that makes the most sense to me, is of course Manny Diaz had to have been somewhat rattled by going six and seven last year, and he's desperate to win. But in the end, he still played the guys that he thought could help him win the best. And that, and that was Pope and Wiggins. And I, again, is it more of an indictment that he decided to play for them and didn't play the freshman and invest in, in developing those guys? Or is it more of an, an indictment on the previous coaching staff for not recruiting well enough, um, you know, some guys to come in and, and replace them? The same thing at the linebacker position, right? I mean, nobody was really ready to come in and replace Shaq Quarterman and Michael Pinckney. Um I don't know. I, I don't. It's a hard question to answer. I, I don't think Manny Diaz was coaching scared, like, oh, I gotta, I'm gonna lose my job this year, so I have to play Pope and Wiggins. I just honestly think he and the and his coaches thought that those guys, you know, right. were, the, were were gonna hold, make catches in games, and they were gonna come up with the plays. And I, I, I agree, Navarro. I think that's what he thought. But all I'm saying is, coaches are wrong all the time, all across right. the country, in every sport. And I think it may have been the case where he was wrong. He, he thought he played the guys that I believe that he played the guys that would give him the best chance to win. But I also hold out the possibility that he was wrong, that he didn't develop these guys that could have been an answer, not down the road, could have been an answer this year. And actually, I think Mike made a great point about fear of losing job. That goes in every industry. As journalists, if you if you screw up and there's no accountability, well, you're just going to not that you're trying to screw up, but that, you know, if you screw up again, that. There's no accountability, and and you know, I, I think that 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 um, that's a theory that goes across any industry, and we saw it in the punt return. They had the problem again, but you know, I think at least they took him out. I think it was Harley who who fumbled, but there really have been anybody he's tried. I, I, I don't hold him as accountable in the punt return issues because how many dudes has he tried there, and they all basically couldn't make a fair catch. So, but at wide receiver, I feel a little bit differently. I don't think he tried different guys enough and again I, I Keyshawn Smith because that's the one we probably saw he was the most impressive young guy would you agree Mike uh, yeah I, I I also think because that's the he's the one who's who we've seen the most of he, he's got more right. of a sample size th- than the other young guys I, I mean I was a little disappointed just because based off the hype that we haven't seen more of Jeremiah Payton yeah I mean I it, I guess that I had I had some high hopes considering all the hype around this kid, especially during uh, you know practice and everything. 
And then it's almost like we just don't see him. Now, I don't know whether that's just on him that he hasn't been practicing well or whether it's just the coaching decisions. Guys, again, I'm going to throw more numbers at you just because this is sort of a season wrap-up. Just so you know, where D. Wiggins and Mark Pope ranked, according to Pro Football Focus, this is among the 51 wide receivers who I basically did 20% of their team's targets. So they were targeted at least 26 times. They had the ball thrown their way. So there were 51 receivers in the ACC, including Notre Dame, that, that were targeted at least 26 times. Pro Football Focus rated... Mike Harley, eighth, okay? This is overall for his grade. And then D. Wiggins was 49th, and Mark Pope was 47th. That's how wow. bad they that, – that's how poorly they thought of Miami's receivers just in the ACC. And and I, I guess the point that I think we're all trying to make, or, or at least, you know, I guess wondering why, is that any of these young receivers probably couldn't do any worse, right? Mm-hmm. The, right. the, you, you can only get be ranked 50th or 51st, right? Yeah, out of 51. Right. That, that's what I mean. So you can't – these young guys wouldn't be able to do any worse than Pope and Wiggins. And, and I'm not trying to rip on them. You know, it, it's just – I guess it's frustrating seeing that it's been a season-long thing. And, and frankly, it's been a, a two- to three-year – you know, thing with them. It's just they, they really haven't developed and, and grown. It, it drops have been a huge part of their careers. Yeah. And, and and also what we what we heard about Keyshawn kind of it goes with what we've seen, the limited chances he's gotten. What did we hear about him? This was a this was not a possession, not like Daz and, and Restrepo that were more like maybe a slot receiver. This is a guy that his reputation he was going to get deep. The stats he had in, in San Diego um sort of indicated that and then when i saw him he was getting behind defensive backs a lot in given how little he was throwing the ball and so i'm excited about him and i am disappointed that he didn't get more opportunities but anyway i I think we covered that navarro what do you think should i go to my next question go go ahead walt i know you got more no this was my only really my second big i mean i can talk about whatever you guys but my my two big questions for the coaches i think i think the wide receiver that's the first one and the second one navarro you and i kind of touched on this last podcast um and i think disagreed with kelvin when he said there was nothing the coaches could have done i think mike you agree with me that there there could have been i think last night showed there was something they could do to stop the run um there that was a much better performance against the run um, they seem to be run blitzing, um, putting more bodies in the box, um, so much so that Oklahoma State came out and they saw the defense and they just threw the ball. It seemed like the first 90 snaps. I'm exaggerating. But you look at the uh, the averages, uh, Navarro, you're the numbers guy, but they're running backs, 3.0, 2.1. And one of those guys ran for 200 yards a couple games ago. They, they After Chuba Hubbard went down, they had at least one guy go over 100 every game that he that he was gone um so that's a good running team so the question is if they made that adjustment for oklahoma state why couldn't they have made that adjustment in game against north carolina not to say it would have been a victory because they spanked the hurricanes but force them to do something different than just hand the ball off and run all over miami well i'll start with this um it was twenty-one nothing by the time Miami's defense got off the bus, right? It was right. <laughs> it was pretty bad right away, and 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 they Oklahoma State came out through throwing the ball 
they didn't run their first designed run, meaning where the quarterback didn't take off and scramble. They didn't run their first design run until the 16th play of the game, and they were already well on their way to that 21 nothing lead. And the first right. carry, by the way, went for 29 yards. Um, so while Miami's final numbers looked good, um, I think – Oklahoma State finished with 113 yards rushing, a 2.6 average for the game. It ran it 43 right. times. I, I think you have to – It was to, much better, Manny. It was much better. It, it, it was, but it, I think it also was a product of a team that a, – a, a situation where they were trying to throw the ball and expose Miami's passing game, and they did. Not only and, that, though, but you have to remember, Chuba Hubbard wasn't playing either. Right, but in the three games after Chuba, they had one kid, I think it's Alexander, whatever his name was, he had 200-something yards. Mm -hmm. They're still a good running team. I'm saying they made an adjustment. They made Oklahoma State do something else. It, the easy, You first have to stop the run. And to let North Carolina do what they did, I mean, to me, Mike, if, you, if I look at the season in its entirety, eight and three, had Miami beaten North Carolina and lost the same way in the bowl game, obviously they would have played a different team, but let's say they lost in a similar fashion down 21 nothing. they lose King, they battle back, they're in position to win. There's nothing to hang your heads about. You know, the loss to Clemson, there's, you know, obviously way better than Miami. And the loss to Oklahoma State, the only one to me that that is that sticks out like a sore thumb that's really embarrassing was that performance in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina, where they just let them hand the ball off and – Stick it to Miami, though. I mean, that was embarrassing. I, I, w I would agree with that. I would also throw in a couple games like the NC State game. Uh, and, you know, I, I would even argue, despite the scoreline, the pit game was – there weren't adjustments made. You know, even, even the Virginia Tech game. It's just I, – I, from watching the games, yes, they won. And, and, and we've talked about this plenty of times where last year's team wouldn't have won those games. But – it just seems like these are bad teams that Miami's playing. They're not very good. They're average. And they're struggling, not making any adjustments at all, letting these average teams hang in this game, take leads in the fourth quarter, and it's just ugly. And and maybe that's the next step compared to last season. Maybe that is. But well, it, it, ju it just did not seem like Miami was an 8-3 and three team this year. It, it didn't feel that way at the end. Certainly losing a bowl game for the 10th time in 11 years. Uh, it, it, like I wrote in my story today, it, you know, only one of those 11 bowl trips was even to a New Year's Day bowl game. You know, the Orange Bowl. One time to the Orange Bowl. The rest of them were all sort of mid-level bowls. And so you, you lose 10 out of 11 of those. And you and it's just there's a general consensus of, man, here we go again. Another crappy finish to a season. Um, but to answer your question, Walter, um, and, and, and to kind of piggyback off of some of the things you said about the defense and how they played all season long, in my story today, I, I put together a chart sort of looking at all of Miami's opponents, what they averaged per game in terms of points and yardage, and then what they did against Miami. And I figured that's a good way to compare. You know, did Miami hold those teams in check to what they normally do, or did they, you know, give up much more? And to Mike's point, you know, you, you look at the end of the season, NC State 41 points, right? At 44-41, you had to win that game. NC State averaged 31 points a game. North Carolina, they were sixth in the country, averaging 43 points a game. You give up 62 to them. And then this Oklahoma State team was pretty average offensively. Even with the good running game, they were, they were averaging 29.5 points per game. 
which was 57th in the country, and you give up 37 points to them. So three out of your last five games weren't very good. And something else to point out, Miami, when they gave up the 41 points to NC State, that was with their backup quarterback. A week later, when they played Virginia Tech and they were in a dogfight to win that game against a very average to bad Virginia Tech team, Khalil Herbert was still injured. He didn't get a whole lot of work in that game. Pittsburgh too. Kenny Pickett was out as well. Right. Kenny Pickett was out for Pittsburgh as well. So when you look at this defense and you and you and you try to stick a fine tooth comb right through it and say, okay, where's the BS and what's real? I think what's real is they got lucky that they didn't play very many good teams this year. I think they they weren't exposed as as bad as they could have been, particularly at the linebacker position. And I would say in the secondary as well. I mean, they didn't face. I mean, yes, they got Trevor Lawrence and they gave up 42 points to Clemson. Clemson averages close to 45 a game. They're the third highest scoring team in the in the country. But you know, they faced a bad Florida State team. Um, they faced the Louisville team that they they give up 34 points to them. It's not like they 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 dominated Louisville. Uh, I don't I don't know. I mean. I think things could have been a lot worse had they played a tougher schedule with better offensive players. And and they were fortunate that they only faced, you know, a, an Oklahoma State team without Chuba Howard and without really their, their best receiver who opted out, by the way, in the middle of the game, right? I mean, how weird was that? Uh, he, I'm only going to play the first half of the bowl game. So, look, I think there's changes have to be made on this defense. I don't know if you fire Blake Baker. I don't know. If you you get rid of Mike Rumpf because he's not maybe recruiting the best players in his own backyard, all of those issues, like I I don't know what the perfect answer is. I just know that right now Miami isn't good enough to play for an ACC championship. They're not good enough to get into the college football playoff, and that's what you want if you're a Miami fan. You want to play in the big games. You want to play in the meaningful games. Now, you have to give Manny Diaz time, right? Uh, This is his second full recruiting class. He has, uh, I think they're ranked 11th right now. Uh, in 247 Sports the year before, they were 16th. They've put together two good recruiting classes. They've gotten two good quarterbacks in, in Tyler Van Dyke and Jake Garcia. Year three is going to be a huge year. We got to see what Manny Diaz does with this group of players. And what, you know, if they if they can get a full spring practice in, 15 practices, how does that help player development? Um, but this is the, the put up or shut up time for, for, for Manny Diaz. And, and playing Alabama in the opener, the number one ranked team in the country, who's probably going to win the national championship this year, is really doing him no favors. I mean, right off the bat, you have the ultimate measuring stick, Nick Saban and Alabama, the the, the team that's absolutely dominated uh, college football for the last 10 to 15 years. And I just, I don't know. I don't know. We're going to get our answers here soon, but I think Manny Diaz, you know, he, he needs Brevin Jordan to come back. He needs Mike Harley to come back. He needs some of these guys on this team who carry a big stick and do a lot of the damage for them to come back. Because if not, the pressure is really going to be on him to, to do a good job here and to, and to make the right kind of changes, to make the change the coordinator if he needs to do that or to hand it to somebody else. But they're, they're just, they're in a spot right now, Walter, where I, I look at the end of the season, and I say, man, they would have certainly been better off not playing those last couple games because I think in a lot of ways it exposed some of the things that maybe we didn't see when they were eight and one. Well, yeah, and that, and as Mike said, that's been a pattern ever since that really became noticeable that year under Rick. I think it was 2017 where they were 10 and 0, and they faded, lost their last three, and that, and that's been a pattern of not finishing strong. Uh, but before I get to that, I wanted to say that's why the uh, the the athletic readers and, and the listeners to the podcast love Navarro because 
you know, I shoot from the hip and Navarro backs everything up with the numbers. Something uh, when I was his editor at the Miami Herald, I always noticed the man, the, the Manny Navarro research. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that. But I also wanted to follow up, Manny, and, and ask you. So and, and Mike pointed out some of the other I, I kind of like minimize the deficiencies in the defense when the Canes won the football game. Like, but you point you did a good job of pointing it out, Mike. But hey, it's a win. And so I kind of forget about it a little bit. But but it's true. There were deficiencies deficiencies there throughout the season. So, so Manny, my question is, my third question is, uh, how wed do you think Diaz is to Baker? I know there is a, a brotherhood there going back to whatever the previous coaching stops. Uh, do you think uh, Diaz, you know, would be able to, you know, th- those things are tough, man. You know, when you when you're when you're friends off the field and whatever, do you think he uh, has it in him that says, hey, if there is a great guy out there for defensive coordinator, that he would make that move? Please don't you know, tell me this is Golden D'Onofrio 2.0. <laughs> you know, it, that's a really hard question. And that's and th- that, I think, ultimately will define whether or not Diaz is the coach here long term. Because there's a, couple, there's a couple layers to this, Walter. Number one, I think we need to identify that every coach in college football likes to have friends or people who execute what they want them to do around them, right? People that he trusts. Their vision. Execute their vision. Execute their vision, right. Ephraim Banda, the safeties coach, he's here. Why? Because he's been with Manny Diaz for almost a decade now, including his other stops, Texas and uh, Louisiana Tech and everywhere else that he's been. Blake Baker, sort of the same thing. He was with him um, at Louisiana Tech, and they obviously have a friendship. And and ultimately, um, I, I think – Cutting off your friends and making a decision to to change things up, there's two layers to that. You, you're kind of putting the blame on somebody else, right? If you're Manny Diaz, you're saying these guys aren't getting the job done. I don't see that. I think Manny has made it pretty clear in the press conferences over and over and over again that this is a collective effort, right? That's what he likes to say. This we We're all in the meetings together. We're all part of the game planning. So I think from his perspective, whether or not he's lying to us in the media – it's the message that he's putting out there that this is a collective effort. So it's not just on one guy. So that he, he he's but wait, but wait, but wait, but wait, they're all part of the, of the game plan. And he still fired two coaches last year. Well, you fired him on offense, which is an entirely different thing because let's not forget um, Manny Diaz, his entire bread and butter is defense, right? I mean, that's what he came up doing. He's been coaching defense from the get go. That's who he is. He is a defensive coach who is trying to, uh, become a head coach. That's what he's doing. This is year three. This is going to be year three of learning on the job as a head coach. He's never been a head coach anywhere else in his career. So it take that's the first layer is can you fire your friends? Dan Enos and uh, Dan, uh, Stubblefield, who's now at Penn State, those weren't his friends. Those were offensive hires. Now it's can he can does Manny Diaz have the gusto, the guts to 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 pull off a firing and, and change? Now that's one aspect, the friend aspect. Friend, friend aspect. The second aspect is a philosophical approach because let's not forget, this is his defense, right? They're running his defense. The whole tackles for loss, sacks, put pressures on the quarterback, play man-to-man, all of that is his philosophical approach to playing defense. If Manny Diaz fires Blake Baker, is he going to bring in another friend to run the same defense? Then why are you firing Blake Baker, right? To me, does Manny Diaz have the guts as a head coach to say, okay, maybe my approach isn't the right way. 
Maybe my approach the last two games has gotten us into big-time trouble. We got absolutely embarrassed by North Carolina, and Oklahoma State came out and shoved it right down our throats for 21 straight points to begin the game. The good, so, the the best head coaches always adapt and put pride second. I mean, I, I I'm not again. I'm not comparing Nick Saban to Manny Diaz by by any stretch of the imagination. But an example is Nick Saban was a traditional guy who liked to have a ground and pound offense. Right when he realized that's not working anymore. He started hiring offensive coordinators who ran the spread, high tempo, like you know, used athletes in space, adjusted to to where college football is, you know, in the present. And I think as a head coach, sure, Nick Saban wouldn't have said to you even five years ago, you know, that's his style of offense, but he he adapted. And and I think Manny Diaz would need to if he believes that philosophically, it's not it's not getting it done. I, I don't think there's any harm in swallowing your pride and saying, let's try something different. And and I don't and that's the thing here is that I don't know that he has the wrong approach. I think this is the way that you have to play defense in terms of, you know, being aggressive, trying to create negative plays, put teams in third and long, all, all those kind of things. I think where Manny Diaz has failed, and I've said this on the podcast before, guys, to both of you, it's the recruiting aspect of it. He didn't have anybody ready to replace his two starting linebackers and Shaq Quarterman and Michael Pinkett. Just didn't. Those guys weren't ready for this year. And he was counting on injured guys and guys who sat out like a Zach McLeod to come back and, and be ready to fill that need. And that's where the indictment to me is on Manny Diaz as a head coach is, does he know how to read talent well enough? Does he know how to read a roster well enough? Does he know how to read the depth chart well enough where – he can anticipate if we have a problem here, we have somebody who can step up and fill that role. And, you know, the recruiting for the last couple of years, especially the cornerback position, Al Blades, okay, he, he he had moments, but for the most part, you go and you look at the PFF grades, he's below average. DJ Ivy, same thing, right? Big, strong corner, four-star kid out of South Florida, doesn't get the job done enough. Um, to Corey Couch, three pass interference penalties. Maybe they weren't all on him yesterday. Maybe some of them were, were bad calls, but still, I mean, the point is, Gervin Hall hasn't lived up to the hype. Gervin Hall has not played well this year. Bubba Even Bolden's Bubba Bolden. been up and down. Um, Amari Carter's had his issues. So well, I think, well, that that's why Manny. I think it's not so much the recruiting. That's why I think Manny Diaz and I and I've had Manny. I've had I have a lot of faith in him. And 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 after last year, we had the famous uh, podcast where you call him a buffoon, and I defended him. And I still will defend him. He he um he made the adjustments after last offseason. I have faith he's going to make the, the adjustment. Now I don't know what coordinator is out there that he thinks is going to be a significant improvement. But I think if he's smart, and I think he is a smart guy, he's the CEO of the team. He's not the defensive coordinator anymore. Mm-hmm. And if somebody can come in, I think it's just so exciting for the team if somebody comes in with a different approach, even just small adjustments um, to make. I, I think it's more than the recruiting. I, I think it, and, and you mentioned to Corey Couch, who's a young man, you know, slight of frame. He's made a big impression on me this year. The guy's got a lot of, uh, can we say, uh, cojones on the show? He's a, he's got a lot of cojones, and um, and but that is seems to me a little bit of a coaching adjustment. Like the hands, he was too handsy, but he was man. He, I like I like the kid's aggressiveness. That's just a slight adjustment. If he can still be close to those receivers, breaking on the ball, 
and and just not there was another one at the goal line i forget who the uh, who who got flagged if you remember the, the um oklahoma state was in the red zone and there was no reason i don't know if it was gervin hall there was no reason to get to put your hands on the receiver and yet he did he got thrown for the flag there was just, just that has to be a little bit of a coaching thing and i just think there's an opportunity here again for manny diaz to interview a bunch of people get some new ideas approach this in a fresh way because I think they do have a lot of athletes year in, year out. And, Manny, you've done a lot of that research compared Miami recruiting to Duke and, and, and whatever. And we have tons of good athletes. It, it may be a question, just like Rhett Lashley was, to reinvigorate this offense. Does somebody come in here with some different ideas and, and, and reinvigorate the defense? And you're right. It is going to be a test of Manny Diaz of really thinking now that the season's over and we've got a month to the next uh, recruiting date to really think this this thing through and maybe he can really he doesn't have to fire Blake Baker maybe he makes him uh you know the linebacker coach or something I don't know but but I think he's got a lot of soul searching to do now yeah and and um I, I just think overall like that's the part when you hire when you hire a guy like Manny Diaz you know who who's been a defensive coordinator's whole career, and he, he's never had head coaching experience. This is part of what you pay for. It's learning on the go, right? It's learning from your mistakes, and, and that he, and that's normally why first time head coaches start out at smaller schools. Yes, and and I think like that like who you perfect said, example. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, look, he he made the changes after year one. Now it's year two. Will he continue to do that? And the friendship factor is certainly a part of a part of it all. And then I think also, like I said, the second layer is philosophical standpoint. Does Manny Diaz have the guts to be a Nick Saban and say, I, I might have to change my approach. I may have to really put this defense in the hands of somebody else and trust them and put my career on the line for them. And I don't know what Manny Diaz is thinking. I don't know if he's thinking I just should you know, go back to being a defensive coordinator and slash head coach. Um, but – I know that something has to change because the defense this year was exposed and it's not championship level. When you give up 700, 7,000 million yards uh, <laughs> to North Carolina, it's just not championship level. And again, everybody wants to point the finger at Blake Baker. Walter, real simple. Who recruited every defensive player on this roster? Was it Blake Baker or was it Manny Diaz? Manny Diaz. It's his players. It's his players he signed off he coached up he did everything with this defense so look that, that's why i'm saying i put myself again manny i put myself in diaz's shoes i would bring coaches in and they don't have to say you know you get to listen hey tell us what we did wrong and you listen to all these ideas you add a, a, a coach or two to the staff i think it's a real good um if he's willing to to sort of take that advice and uh because I know Manny Diaz, first thing in the morning, he's going to listen to this podcast. Am I right, Navarro? <laughs> yes. So, does. so you know, I mean, if you bring in coaches and you ask them, hey, what would you do differently? To take, you, know, at, you know, because that's what coaches, they come in and say what they would do. I think it's, a, it's um, he has a chance. He showed last year. He impressed me last year. And, Mike, I'm pretty sure with you as well, uh, that, that he was willing to make changes. He's willing to analyze. It didn't take him three, four, five years, which he know he didn't have three, four, five years. He needed to change things right away. We've seen coaches, Al Golden, uh, who didn't make those adjustments. So I, I'm optimistic that he will. 
look at this with, with some fresh eyes, maybe bring in some new coaches and make some adjustments. I, I like the aggressiveness. I, I like the tackles for losses. But there are times when you have to run a zone blitz and have eight in coverage and throw a, you know, different wrenches to it. There are some teaching tools, you know, the, 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 the hands you know, on the receivers, which you just can't do in today's game. Um, Amari Carter, how many times was he penalized uh, for trying to blow a playoff instead of like running in front and, and breaking on the ball and getting the interception? I mean, we just can't play that type of football anymore. So I, I and, 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 and Mike, I'm sure you have a lot of other examples this year of adjustments that weren't made. Um, there, I think there's a lot of this, as much as I am the defender of Manny Diaz, a lot of this is on the coaching on adjustments they can make going forward. Well, that's why I, I, I think, like I said, whoever is wants to take the blame, whether Manny Diaz is saying it's a collective thing or, or you want to put it all on Blake Baker or all on Manny Diaz, whoever, you can't go into next season with the same coaching staff and, and everything the same. Yeah, you, I agree. You just can't do that, uh, especially without Quincy Roche and, and Jalen Phillips. You know, for for the most part this season, those two guys kind of bailed out Miami a lot, especially in in the pass rush uh, area. I I will will say this. Last night, um, Miami, in terms of tackles for loss, matched their season average. They had nine tackles for loss. They averaged 8.6 per game in the regular season. So in terms of production, without those two guys, without their two main pass rushers and they were able to to get to the quarterback uh, and, and get some hits on the quarterback. And they were able to, you know, Jafari Harvey had a, a sack and a strip that, that Oklahoma State recovered, but he did get to the quarterback and knock the ball out of his hand. So that was an encouraging sign, at least from the perspective of replacing Roche and uh, Phillips. Yeah, a lot of it was missing too was uh... – I was talking to another buddy of mine after the game was the playmaking, you know, even the one uh, where there was a, I'm not sure it was that one where they hit the quarterback and the ball fluttered up in the air about 15 yards. And, you know, I'm thinking where's Ed Reed to pick that off, Sean Taylor to pick that off and go to the house and they get a completion out of it. I mean, there was the fumbles that were there to be had. We don't scoop, scoop it up and score. We don't even recover it. There, there were just playmakers missing. Um, that 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 was pretty glaring. When 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 that ball goes up in the air, you remember the one I'm talking about, yeah. Navarro? And yeah, that was the first and second drive of the game. Yeah, I I mean, you just shake your head. Like, w- w- where's the reaction? Where's where's the linebacker? Where's the safety coming up and picking that ball? Well, I mean, I think that that falls again on the linebackers, and it shows you you know how poor those guys have been all season. Like that that to me is in a linebacker area. The cornerbacks are down the field. The uh, you know, the safeties are down the field covering and coverage. And, and so to me, that's where, you know, a guy like Corey Flagg, who's, you know, he's a true freshman. Um, if he's on the field and he's got a little bit more experience under his belt, he's probably there to make that play. Um, you know, Bradley Jennings did catch a, an interception off a deflection that was wiped off. But again, Bradley Jennings, is, it always feels like he's normally a step slow. Um, you know, Wayman Steed started yesterday at linebacker because they, of course, they wanted to put uh, – McLeod at defensive end. Um, McLeod actually had five, uh, I think, pressures on the opposing quarterback, according to Pro Football Focus, which was the most on the team, although he, he never got to the quarterback. He just put pressure. Um, so I don't know, man. I don't know what the answer is. I think playmakers is the right word. I think James Williams and Leonard Taylor are two playmakers. I think Avante Williams is a playmaker. Uh, they've got guys waiting in the wings to be playmakers. But, I Manny, just... we, we've said that about every highly touted 
prospect coming into Miami. And no, I think, you're right. And I, I, and I and I think this kind of goes back to to what we we've talked about the past year and a half on this podcast is that there has been no player development at the University of Miami. There have been very few players who have walked in as a freshman and have left a better player. And and I think that's a big reason why there's really no depth at linebacker. I think that's why a cornerback position is is below average because none of these players have come in as a freshman and gotten better. Everybody is still the same player, and you can't have that level of production. Well, a couple of things are going to change here in this next NFL draft. First of all, there's going to be a first-round pick on the defensive side of the football at Miami for the first time since 2016. Maybe yes. more than one. 20, 2016 was the last time Miami had somebody on their defense drafted in the first round, and that was Artie Burns. Okay, um, But even before that, you go to Artie Burns, who was the previous first-round pick on defense before Artie Burns? Kenny Phillips. Kenny Phillips. Yep. 2008. So you've had one first-round pick on defense in 12 years. I mean, after Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, and the amount of guys that have come out of this program, to say that sentence is just insanity to me. Um, so you're going to have Gregory Rousseau, who people will say was developed because he was a three-star kid who, who you know grew into his body and, and played well for a season. You're going to have Jalen Phillips, who's going to be a first-round pick um, because he's former number one overall recruit that Miami happened to get in, in the transfer portal. Um, one of Manny Diaz's very good pickups in the transfer portal. Um, but beyond that, I, I think you can look at the rest of this roster and say, okay, where are the first, few, the next first-round picks, right? Where, I mean, is Nessa Silvera going to be a first-round pick? No. But, uh, but Manny, we're not even talking first-round picks. I, I would even gladly take a Denzel Perryman, who was – very, very solid. Was never going to be a first-round pick, but developed from his freshman to senior season. And we don't even have those on the defense where you know, you know, you know, you're going to get solid production out of this guy and at this position. Yeah, I think I think back. I have to go back to Michael Jackson to a guy uh, who developed, who wasn't much when he got here, and Rump, who's. Uh, Criticized for his recruiting effort, did do a nice job developing him. But but you're right, Mike. It's not a lot of guys that you can you can think of that that's that's true. Yeah. So to me, again, it comes back to recruiting. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I do all these charts. I track all this information. I write all these stories on. You know, I did it last year on who Miami sent to the draft and and how the numbers. You know, they're still getting guys drafted, Walter. You know, I think I wrote this in my story last year. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think they're still top 10 in terms of NFL production just within the last 10 to five years. So it's not like they're not putting guys in the league. The problem is none of those guys are developing into stars. Like if you look at the NFL roster right now, all you know, all 32 NFL teams, and you say, well, where are the Canes? Okay, well, Shaq Quarterman's a backup linebacker in Jacksonville. DJ Dallas is like the third string running back in Seattle. Uh, Jonathan Garvin is like a backup for the for the Packers. Sheldrick Redwine, another guy who plays in spurts for the Browns. Like there's not there's not the Pro Bowlers. There's not these special players that Miami used to produce. And it's not just recent history, but long term history. I mean, you, you know, basically what you have now in the NFL as far as guys that are stars that are making impacts is like Calais Campbell, and he's in what year thirteen. And and Manny, I think the sad thing about that is. You see all this talent in Miami's backyard go to other schools and then go to the NFL and become those players. 
Mm-hmm. It's just Miami used to get those players in recruiting. Now they don't anymore. And it's hard, Mike. It really is. And, and, I, and I've said this many times. Whoever the head coach at Miami is, I know Walter thinks otherwise, but I, I'm in firm belief that this is one of the toughest jobs in the country because you have the, this level of expectations where, well, you have this great backyard. You have to get these kids. Well, guess what? It's been 17, 18 years since Miami's been relevant in the national championship picture. So all of these kids, the same way they change high schools 400 times, right, in South Florida, that they all want to go play at Central and Northwestern and whoever's winning a championship, that's what they want to do when they go to college. They don't want to come to a school that loses 62 to 26 to North Carolina. Like, every time one of those losses happens, every time Miami loses to an FIU or loses to Duke or loses to Louisiana Tech or falls behind 21-0 in a bowl game, what happens? Those elite recruits that are watching, right? What do they do? I don't want to go play for the school that they laugh at. And if they do come to Miami, it's because their parents and the people who care about them really want them to stay close to home. So so it's a never-ending cycle of them not getting the players good enough to win, them not winning, then the top talent doesn't come because they're not winning. It's a cycle that needs to be broken at some point, but it's where do you start? Do you, start, right, well, win, do you start winning games with average talent and that attracts the top talent? Or do you get the top talent first and then you start winning? Well, I think Manny started to break that chain, the recruiting job he did coming off of six and seven. I give him a lot of credit for that. Well, he did. And I think I also give COVID-19 a lot of credit for that also, Walter, because <laughs> let's face it, a lot of these kids didn't end well, up. That, that's Miami's advantage that I've been saying for about you know 90 years because because where they are on the map, they have those players in the backyard, COVID or not COVID. And, and, and that's the difference that Nebraska never will never have. Nebraska produces well, five the, players a year. The they qu- have to go outside their state to get every single player they get. When I when I look back to what Howard Schnellenberger did, and you, Walter, I was a kid back then. You, you were a, a teenager, maybe an adult. <laughs> um, what Howard Schnellenberger did was he hired a bunch of badass coaches, right? Didn't he have a bunch of really good coaches around him, guys who went on to bigger and better things? And those guys, well, he, also kind of, he also kind of sold the NFL. He remember he came off of Shula's right uh, staff, and he had that the cachet of being an NFL guy. And and these guys want to get to the NFL, so I think he sold that as well. And he said he made the famous comment. I think you're gonna get to it, but the state of Miami, right from mm-hmm. from uh, wherever he said down. I don't know if it's Palm Beach or Orlando down south. Not that. that was- I will say this: while there was always a state of Miami, it wasn't branded as the state of Miami when when Howard started, and I don't think he faced nearly the same level of competition for recruits as Manny Diaz had. There was Alabama was Alabama then, but it wasn't Alabama that came into South Florida and got a boatload of great Miami kids. They were winning with kids from all over the country. Um, and no, but 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 schools have always come down. If you look at Elliot Walker to Pitt and Buster Rhymes, Oklahoma schools, Elvis Peacock, all these great names from uh, from all those years ago. Right, schools would come down here and pick up pick off these these top players like they're like they're still doing now because there's all these great athletes and just just Miami. In fact, there wasn't you know obviously there wasn't FIU and FAU back then. But I think I think um, I was reading something in the Athletic obviously actually. Recently, that Arizona and Arizona State, I didn't don't think they got one player out of Arizona this year. One one of the, I don't think they got a single one. I, I could be wrong about that, but they did a really poor job of recruiting their own state. So, um, and there's opportunities. Schools see that, man. Schools see like, hey, Arizona. Not that they have the amount of players that Florida has, but whatever top players are there, they can be picked off. Right. And and I know Saban sees that. And 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 
He's been seeing it. And other schools see it. I mean, there was a time Rutgers, uh, on the first uh, time under Shiano, he was making a living coming down here because he knows, even if I get the sixth choice of Florida kids, that's still way better than what I have in New Jersey. Right. Well, so here's my here's my question for you two because you you guys are down there you you understand I guess the the high school kids um, I guess trying to decide where to go to school. If Miami was a let's say a top ten team every you know top five to ten team every year between five and mm-hmm. ten right just outside the college football playoff but always playing Clemson in the ACC championship game. Wouldn't you think that, sure, it's a lot harder to recruit South Florida and all the top guys down here now, back when Howard Schnellenberger did. But wouldn't you think if Miami could sell that, these top kids would prefer to stay home if Miami was yes. relevant? Because I feel like that's that's the thing where it's, yes, it's harder to recruit. And yes, you're going to have programs like Ohio State and Alabama and Clemson coming in to South Florida, getting you know, recruiting these top guys. But if my if they already had a program like that down here, they wouldn't leave. Am I am I wrong? No, I, I think you're right, Mike. I think a lot of these kids naturally um, get pushed to the University of Miami by the by their peers and people who want them to stay home and help the program win. I I, I think the fact I think it's almost as if the the embarrassing losses to me have hurt more than you know, losing to Clemson or losing to, you know, some really good team. I, I think it's the embarrassment of FIU. Like when, when I was talking to Leonard Taylor in March last year about Miami, he's like, dude, they lost to FIU. Like that was his, his sort of reasoning, like why he wasn't going to come to Miami. And and that to me in a nutshell is what I think. I think it's more of the embarrassment of do you want to go play for that team that gets booed, that gets beat 62 to 26, you know? And I, I think there's some of that, but I, I also think it varies uh, kid mm-hmm. to kid. I think there's some kids uh, like the Bosa's, you know, they're more worldly. Their father, you know, has, I'm, I'm sure is well to do. He was a former NFL player and, uh, you know, they have roots there in Ohio and stuff. And, and they're probably going to leave regardless. There are other kids like Duke Johnson, no matter who the coach, he was going to stay. And, and maybe whatever their situation, maybe they're raised by a single mom and they, and they want to be home. Close to their, their I, I think it's it's it, I so, think it's beating out the, the the top local kids for Florida for Florida State for Clemson for Alabama the schools that regionally down here dominate I think look Miami's beaten Alabama for some, ta- some for some talented kids in the past why because maybe the playing situation was better at Miami but they were contenders for it because they were decent enough because people were excited enough over Manny Diaz's defense and the turnover chain. There's things, there's ways that you can lure kids who are on the fence. I, I just think, but the top talent isn't coming here. They weren't in the, that, they that, were not in the past. The I would and say Leonard Taylor and James Williams are hands yes, down the I best, think they fit two best in players that they've recruited in a long time. But, but I think, I, I think both of you would agree with this though. You can't, if you want to compete with the likes of the top programs in the country, you can't just have two players like that every recruiting class. You need to have a good chunk of those every single class. And and sure, it's hard, but that's the only way to compete with if you want to compete. And I would level. also say the other aspect is you also have to be good at knowing who the busts are. Because this area in South Florida, as good as it is, as great as it is at producing guys who go on to the NFL, and even under the radar guys like Hollywood Brown, right, Antonio Brown's, uh, nephew or cousin who's who's now with the Ravens, um, who, who was basically, I think, a two-star kid coming out of here. 
and maybe a Gregory Rousseau, right? You have to be good at identifying a guy who, you know, see him playing wide receiver and safety in high school and say, no, you got to put your hand on the ground and, and be a pass rusher. Like you have to continue to do that. But I also think you got to continue or start to stop recruiting, you know, the Mark Popes of the world who are five-star guys in the eyes of all the recruiting analysts, but yet his game doesn't translate to the college level. He doesn't pl- perform it the same way he did in high school. Like, that's the other aspect. I think they've had a lot of busts as well. They've gotten good players. And they've, they've signed guys that, that ultimately, you know, Christian Williams is a perfect example, right? Former Alabama commitment. Uh, he, he comes down to Miami. You say, hey, we're going to play you. You're going to be a really good cornerback here. And then after the first week of the season, he's not playing. And so he says, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm in the transfer portal. So Manny Diaz has to get better. At, at player management, right? It's it's reading who the busts are and then also knowing, you know, hey, if we're going to give this kid a scholarship and we're going to make him a, a a big time part of this program, how do we know that he's really invested? He's not going to jump in the transfer portal just because we're not playing him right away. It, it's a lot trickier. That's why I say it's a but tougher also- job, Walter. That's For all those reasons, I think this is a tougher job than any other job in South Florida when it comes to coaching. But, but also put yourself in the shoes of, of- – of these uh, of these kids, of these young men. Let's say you're Patrick Sertain Jr. and and now Nick Saban lands his helicopter on the on the football field, and you know he's wooing you in the SEC and all this. You know some of these kids are going to be susceptible to that, and his father is well to do. Also, I think those kids are harder to keep home. They're well to do. They come from from wealthy families. I've been in Patrick Sertain's house. It's beautiful. Um, you know, and, and so you're going to lose some of those guys, and that's okay. And I think the other thing, if you if you go and watch what Jimmy Johnson, the legend and a, and a great judge of talent, a great recruiter, and okay, you're not going to get all of them, but then you go into Texas and you get a, and you and you and you get a few from there. You you go into Jersey, you look for those situations. What I said about Arizona, like hmm, Arizona's not keeping their their in-state guys. Maybe they they'd want a change of scenery to come to Miami. Still warm weather. You go into New Jersey. Look at um, they signed three kids out of New York. They were, you know, uh, that that you know, defensive linemen that seem to be have some potential. So I'm not putting it all like they have to get every single, um, you know, South Florida kids. Some of them you're just going to lose for the reasons I said. Um, but but you have to um, you have to do well down here. Obviously, then you have to pick up guys in other states. And something that Mike said, you have to develop and you have to have a system which I think we have now offensively and we have to have a system. I think, I think it goes, so all this goes hand in hand where, where the next man up can be successful because the system works. The coaching is tip top. The, 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 the techniques that they're teaching work. And so, so you're not so reliant on whether you get a kid who is more have a worldview and was never, he wanted to see like who among us, like I, I think it shit. If I'm in that situation, I might want to go to Southern Cal. I might want to go, you know, to someplace else different. You know, when I was a kid and a young man, I went to California. I always dreamed about California. I went out there and I took a job out there in the the San Francisco Bay Area. And so if I did that, these kids might have the same like, you know, same mindset. But then you can you can supplement your your local recruiting, which you have a huge advantage, as I keep saying, and then pick up guys in other states. Well, they've tried. They've gotten a few here and there. Um, obviously, Jake Garcia is not from here. Uh, he's he's a big time get for them. I know Tyreek Austin Cave up in New Jersey. Certainly, uh, Jason Blissett, another kid that that they're they have high hopes for, was a four star kid up in the New York area. Uh, Jared Harrison Hunt is not from down here. Um, yeah. You know they've they've tried. Um, the question is, 
can those guys something big and really help you win games? Um, we'll see. Uh, I know uh, we got to start wrapping this thing up, man. Um, I appreciate both of you guys coming on. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, 2021 is a better year for everybody, including Miami and, and the fan base. I know that they want more and more improvement. And, and certainly I like covering a team that wins more. Um, and, and we don't have to sit here all day talking about what they've got to do to get to that next level. But uh, we'll see. We'll see if Manny Diaz, what kind of changes he makes here in the in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, how much transfer portal action we see here. They've got three scholarships left, and I think they're certainly going to use them in the transfer portal. So uh, we'll see what, what positions they address and how they can uh, and upgrade this team going forward. I'm the eternal optimist. I don't think it's, you know, that far away. I, before we wrap it up, Navarro, uh, you know, give us one sentence on uh, De'Ara King. How long do you think uh, – we, we can't close the show without – addressing that how long when do you predict he'll be or, or did, have they made no some sort of announcement I don't today any announcement i mean derek last night uh tweeted out you know he doesn't know why this happens for happened to him i i think it's a serious knee injury in the sense where he's going to be out months and needing to rehab so i i would assume oh. that uh there's a chance he could come back in september and be be ready for the start of the season we know guys come back from acls and mcls quicker than before and Dierick is a hellacious athlete, um, so I would think he would train really hard and, and try to come back. But there's a possibility they may not have him for the opener. We'll see. I mean, uh, there's no official word, Walter. I haven't called his brother or anybody in his family to talk. Uh, I know that today they were doing more sort of medical work and look and examining his knee and so forth. So uh, it'll probably get leaked soon. What what the what the uh, what the result of all of that is. But personally, looking at the situation, looking at his body language, seeing the tweet, I would assume this is a long-term injury. And in the end, does it really matter what it is? I think it's, it's, it's it, can he be ready for Alabama? That's what everybody wants to know. And I, and we won't know that answer, I think, till August. We, really, well, we really yeah. won't have any clear idea till August. As I said, I want what's best for Derek. And if he had said he was going to the NFL, I would have supported it because that guy has been great for the program. I know the fans are very appreciative, and it just sucked it, to see him down on the ground. It didn't seem that serious. Um, the way it wasn't a hard hit, it wasn't a dirty hit. It didn't seem like it was, you know, that that big a deal. And I'm I'm just hoping that uh, that that he comes back by July, and maybe uh, Garcia and Van Dyke can get that work in uh, in spring practice. But I'm the eternal optimist, right. man. That's what uh, I'm hoping. Final for. word from you, Mike Zimmerman. I'm just nervous that um, what this program will will look like without De'Ara King. Um, I I mean I've have said this time and time this season he covered up a lot of holes on this team. I think he bailed out the defense a lot of the time. I think he bailed out the offensive line a lot of the times. So I guess I'm just nervous what this team would look like without him. And and he's not there to I guess carry this team. And maybe right. cover up some well, of those holes. Well, we will see if he's ready for September 4th in Atlanta. Uh, Terrence Lewis, the five-star recruit linebacker out of uh, Miami Central. Uh, I guess he's going to decide between Miami and Maryland on Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday, January 2nd, uh, the All-American Bowl Declaration Day. So We don't need <laughs> any linebackers. We'll oh, see. yeah, we do. <laughs> I was, I was going to say that uh, Terrence Lewis actually was not – really considering Miami until well, what, the past it, couple it's, weeks. It's been this ongoing flirtation back and forth. And I've asked people on the staff, are you guys recruiting him? I've been told no. Then I've been told yes. I've been, a I've asked, is he consider? are you guys considering him? Is he going to come to Miami? And I've been told he didn't have us in the final two. 
So, I, you know, it's a whole lot of mixed messages. If they get him, great. Let's see if he's any good. I, I'm not going to sit here and celebrate mm-hmm. the signing of a five-star linebacker who, you know, to me, didn't really seem committed to Miami or wanting to come to Miami and maybe is only picking Miami now because he doesn't have a lot of other choices left. So, But if he, but if he can play, well, who right, cares? But I also believe coming. that a lot of that comes into into play in terms of attitude and the, and the way that they carry themselves. So we'll see. We'll see. If, he, sure. if he's good, he's good. And that helps Miami, great. If it if he goes to Maryland, oh, well. I just, uh, I'm just throwing it out there that – that he's he's making his announcement at 3 p.m. on Saturday. All right, that's it. We're gonna wrap it up with that, I guess. Uh, Mike Walter, thank you guys very much. You've uh, listened to Wide Right, final episode of 2020. We will be back uh, soon. Don't know when exactly, but we'll be back soon with more Wide Right in the future. Three oh five, nine five four, five six eight. This is the state of my.